I'm Dr. Omar Khan. I'm Dr. Shannon Gowland. I'm Dr. Tiffany Dursey. And welcome to Vet Sessions. Welcome back to Vet Sessions. I'm so very excited today to have our very own board-certified anesthesiologist, Dr. Carolyn Kerr, in-house today. Hi, Carolyn. Hey, Tiff. Welcome. We're so, so excited today because our our topic is really interesting. It's on opioid-based and opioid-free anesthesia, and I can't wait to learn uh, more about that. So it's an introduction to the controversy and recommendations to optimize patient outcomes. Very exciting. (laughs) (laughs) So before we dive into this, um, so tell me a little bit about yourself, Carolyn. Tell me about your veterinary journey and how it is that you are here uh, at OVC. Uh, Thanks, Tiff. Well, of course, I'm a graduate of OVC and uh, winters were a little too warm in southern Ontario. So I headed to the University of Minnesota uh, for a rotating large animal internship before joining a large uh, mixed animal practice in upstate New York. Cool. So I worked there for a few years, and then I found my way back to OVC for advanced training in anesthesia, then did a little more, headed to Western Ontario to do a PhD in physiology. And then after a few little exams and a thesis presentation, I returned to OVC as a faculty member. So I'm in the Department of Clinical Studies, and my main interests are the effects of anesthesia and analgesia in domestic uh, veterinary species. Very cool. That's that, that's excellent. And uh, of course, um, I remember you back in the day. I graduated in two thousand. I can remember you were uh, around at that time. And um, anesthesia was uh, always a very interesting topic, but also it could be very challenging trying to figure out the physiology and the drugs and whatnot. But somehow it all comes together. So, um, so I'm really interested today in our topic: um, opioid-free anesthesia. Um, maybe you can clarify what is opioid-based analgesia or anesthesia first? Sure. So opiate-based anesthesia really just refers to basically what most of us do every day, which is um, anesthesia that includes an opioid analgesic as a component of the protocol. Mm -hmm. So the same applies to opiate-based analgesia. In vet medicine, most of us are responsible for providing anesthesia to companion animals, and we include opioids in our pre-medication So for us, we also top up or administer a second or third dose. Um, And for us, that's often during anesthesia, recognizing that our anesthetics are very long. And I suspect a lot of um, practitioners are administering those second doses um, at the end of the procedure. The patient may even be awake. Right. Um, For us, we also um, may give infusions of opiates and get a little fancy, Uh, But certainly in the very painful patients, um, we rely on them heavily. So again, back to the main reasons we use them is to provide um, pre-op analgesia. So for patients that aren't painful and for painful patients, so you have a patient comes in with a fracture, Mm -hmm. we'll probably give it to provide analgesia pre-op as well as post-op. So when the patient's unconscious, uh, if you go back to those uh, dusty memories of pain physiology, right? uh, (laughs) They have to be, it's a conscious awareness of uh, an unpleasant uh, stimuli. Mm -hmm. So when they're unconscious, they can't feel pain. But that doesn't mean we still don't have benefits from opiates during the intraoperative period. Uh, Basically, what they do is reduce the nociceptive input to the central nervous system. 
and therefore reduce the amount of general anesthetics that we need to use to maintain anesthesia. Right. And because the opiates have relatively um, less um, adverse cardiovascular and respiratory effects relative to the inhalants, at least, um, we have better cardiovascular and pulmonary stability under anesthesia when we do include those opiates. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense. I remember, um, you know, learning about all the the, the different anesthesia um, uh, options. And of course, um, you know, in the news these days, there's lots of information about opioids and how beneficial opioids are for pain. And so certainly here at the Primary Health Care Center, we use a lot of opioids, you know, for our spay neuters and lump removals, et cetera, dentistry. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're giving it, like you said, at the pre-anesthetic uh, period, because as I understand, you're always better to treat pain before it happens. Um, you know, of course, you have dental pain preoperatively, then you want to go ahead and treat it. So opioids have definitely been something that we uh, we use a lot. Um, so so I assume that opioid-free anesthesia is providing anesthesia without any opioids. So kind of the opposite of what you just said. Absolutely correct. You got that question right on the test. <laughs> <Yes>. um, <laughs> opiate-free anesthesia or analgesia refers to anesthesia or analgesia that do not include opiates. And so that sounds really challenging because, again, you know, we were talking about how beneficial opioids are. Um, How is this achieved while still providing pain relief uh, pre and post-op? So several strategies have been used uh, to replace the need for opiates. Um, So, for example, using local anesthetic techniques. So we could have an epidural um, just with a local, not with a local and an opiate. Uh, We could also use other analgesics. Thank goodness the NSAIDs are have right. been added to yes. our uh, protocols because uh, they've really certainly helped extend mm-hmm. uh, the analgesia period. Um, and certainly there's uh, other agents that can be used such as alpha-2s, ketamine, and or lidocaine. And they can be either given as a infusion or as a intermittent boluses. Okay, that's, that's interesting. Um, it does sound rather challenging to exclude opioids. So why is there interest in opioid-free anesthesia or the move away from any inclusion of opioid analgesics in the preoperative period? Why, why would we do this? So in the human medical field, um, I think that the main move away or my interpretation of the literature and from reading as much as I can on the topic is that the move away from the use of opiates um, stemmed from three major concerns. Uh, first is the concern related to the side effect of opiates. Uh, most notably the nausea and vomiting, as well as the respiratory depression in humans, which is quite significant. And I don't think there's a lot of controversy there. The second uh, concern of um, proponents for avoiding opiates is a concern that high-dose exogenous opiates, so the drugs that we have, may interfere with the endogenous opiate system, resulting in counterproductive effects on pain and recovery. Mm. So some investigators have even suggested that opiates may contribute to chronic pain. But I think this is still very, very controversial. They're really extending some of their conclusions based on, you know, lab animal findings. Interesting. And and pain is super complicated. You could spend your whole um, Absolutely. Uh, life studying a cell that's involved with uh, pain. So I think it's we can't clump all patients together. So their third concern, which I think has really risen, um, has been the concern related to the opiate crisis. Sure. 
So prescribed perioperative opiates, which is really what I'm talking about today, right. certainly have been implicated as one of the causes of the current opiate crisis. Although when I've delved into that, mm -hmm. I think it's a little more controversial. So the oral opiates, I think we're all familiar with hydrocodone right. from, the, from the news media. Um, it certainly was prescribed relatively um, liberally um, for chronic pain. Mm -hmm. And it likely contributed to a significant increase in use of opiates, addiction, and subsequent deaths. Wow. I think what we're seeing now, um, since 2017 and onward, it has been a massive increase in opiate-associated morbidity and mortality in, in humans. Mm -hmm. And that is more related to the use of heroin, fentanyl, and fentanyl derivatives. And those really aren't the opiates that are prescribed. True. Um, they may, they're usually obtained through other sources. So I think that's a little more controversial. It's certainly out there in the media, and sure. there was a lot of political pushback to anesthesiologists to avoid the opiates, um, but that has been really called into question. Yeah, and you hear about that all the time in the news. I mean, still, um, you know, um, um, you know, addictions, and and you know, again, um, what what can we do from the perspective of veterinary medicine and ensure that you know we're handling these these um, materials safely and, and not contributing, right? Because I even know, um, you know, way back in the day, not that this is good, but you know, we would use a partial dose of hydromorphone, and it would be in a little glass container, and you know, potentially you'd kind of leave it on the shelf and potentially use it later in the day or, or, you know, the unused partial portion you'd put in a syringe and, and certainly times have changed and we, we don't do that anymore because of concerns, um, not necessarily that the animal's going to grab it off the shelf, uh, but we want to make sure that our staff are safe, our students are safe and that, that this, the access to these medications are, are limited. And that's an mm -hmm. excellent point. To have, like, yeah, there's the big numbers, but I think we absolutely have to do everything we can recognizing. Sure the risk associated with these drugs. Mm -hmm. So I'm not uh, saying that on a, you know, there have been reports where it's been obtained through vet clinics. So mm -hmm. we can't, uh, but that doesn't say that our patients are getting addicted or has True. an adverse effect in, with respect to either chronic pain or um, contributing a large percent to the opiate crisis. Right, right. Um, so are the drivers for opioid-free anesthesia the same in veterinary medicine as in human medicine? So it's interesting that the term started popping up in blogs and, you know, at conferences. Suddenly I was seeing talks on it, and yet I wasn't running into many articles on mm -hmm. it. There's probably four or five that I can find in, you know, peer-reviewed journals. Um, and I think it's been driven by different things. Um, and we've been sort of cocooned here away in Canada and I think what has really driven the interest in opiate-free anesthesia is access to opiates. Um, we're, again, have not had a shortage of opiates, um, at least um, yeah, and for the moment. <laughs> yeah. Uh, however, that's not the same in many countries. Um, and I think, you know, I've, I've certainly been aware through students that have traveled to wonderful places that mm -hmm. they're like, hey, Dr. Kerr, what protocol could I use? I don't have access to, when sure. I go to country XYZ. Mm -hmm. What do you think? Or, or more commonly probably is Dr. Kerr, I was <laughs> somewhere this summer and we didn't have opiates. Right. right. Um, so but what really happened was in, in 2018, there was a major shortage of opiates in the United States. And so that kind of hit close to home. And I think that's what drove the interest um, in South America as well as the U.S. into interest in doing um, more research on opiate-free anesthesia. Right. 
In addition to that, I think there, like humans, uh, there are side effects mm -hmm. in our patients. Um, certainly in awake dogs and cats, the pu pure mu um, agonists are associated with clinical signs of nausea, regurgitation and vomiting. Respiratory depression, although it's not as severe as in humans, it can certainly be significant, particularly if the animal is sedated or is under general anesthesia. Mm -hmm. And of course, there's our brachycephalic patients that were really concerned uh, about those side effects. And then, of course, we've seen hyperthermia in cats. So those are, to me, the major complications that I worry about or think about, you know, related uh, to should I use these drugs in an individual patient? Absolutely. Um, now, you mentioned a few strategies that are used in humans to achieve OFA. Um, can OFA be achieved in companion animals undergoing surgery? Yeah, so opiate-free anesthesia, or OFA, um, yeah. certainly can uh, be done in animals. And there's, like I mentioned, a few studies uh, looking at that. Um, local anesthetic techniques, to be fair, I was a large animal practitioner primarily for my first few years, and we use a lot. <laughs> but we're able to <laughs> right. do um, uh, surgery just under locals uh, with NSAIDs. Um, and, uh, but the studies in, in vet medicine have certainly relied on alpha-2s, um, ketamine, infusions of ketamine um, with or without lidocaine to provide adequate anesthesia. Yeah, I remember, um, you know, when I graduated 20 years ago, I remember, you know, um, going into clinics or starting my first job and um, actually not having access to um, opioids. Uh, I mean, actually, the only opioid-ish drug that we had was butorphanol. Yeah. And so I can remember, you know, we would spay neuter with butorphanol and an NSAID and, um, you know, there was yeah, other, you know, options. But mm -hmm. um, but I can remember all of a sudden when hydromorphone came out and it was like, oh, this is amazing. This is incredible. You know, oh, my gosh, what were we doing all these days with butorphanol? So I find it really interesting seen that we're kind of not necessarily going full circle round, but we're being a little bit more cautious and saying, well, what options are there? And now we've got so many various pain medications that, you know, that we can use um, for, for analgesia. So, um, so is there evidence that opioid free anesthesia, OFA, is as good as protocols that include opioids? So just to be clear, just as there's mm -hmm. interest in this area, there's certainly a lot of pushback and certainly, um, there's, there's no way you can make, um, you know, meloxicam into uh, hydromorphone when you have a patient that presents with a, you know, trauma with right. some fractures or, you know, back fractures to me are really painful patients. So um, certainly, I think leaders in the field are still, um, I think they're open to the concept, uh, take what we can from the learnings, but they're still... Um, a recognized need for including opioids right and um but again i think that's you know a good balanced uh anesthesia technique or an opiate sparing technique may be uh, beneficial in, in most cases right. over an, a complete opiate free anesthesia certainly in the human uh, side just more recently they've had quite a few studies looking at opiate sparing techniques uh, versus um, let's say a dexmedetomidine um, based protocol and um, it the dexmedetomidine protocol actually led to more complications oh, interesting. In, in a large large like um, th but they did stop before it, the complication rate was high enough that they stopped their very large clinical trial in companion animals uh, again we still don't have a lot of strong evidence to its benefits over a, an opiate um, based protocol 
And, uh, you know, the one study that I think is a great study in Montreal, they looked at uh, opiate-free versus uh, including an opiate, like a protocol that involved an opiate mm-hmm. or included an opiate. And what they found was um, certainly mature cats, they required that additional pure mu agonist to provide adequate analgesia. They had a high failure rate and a need to intervene. Okay. So as of yet, um, I would say um, there, there's very... There's not a lot of room to use opiate-free um, analgesia for patients, healthy patients undergoing anesthesia um, for a procedure. Um, but I still think there's some things we can take away. Absolutely. Um, so overall, if OFA is not as good as protocols that include opioids for surgical patients, should we change anything or should we just consider it as a fad and just let it go? Yeah, and I think I addressed this a little bit before. I think mm-hmm. that's a great question. So my thoughts are, first off, I think we will not be doing opiate-free anesthesia in the near future, or I won't be when I'm just anesthetizing sure. dogs or cats um, if I have access to opiates and uh, they're going undergoing surgery. But I think we can learn some from those um, studies in case we don't have opiates, mm-hmm. and uh, that's something to consider. Um, and finally, I think uh, we should constantly think about how, what we're doing and really question how we can best use the opiates. Um, the question I think I would like to ask is how can we reduce our concerns related to the side effects of opiates? And while I don't have much control over access, um, there are some, some strategies that we could use to reduce the potential of side effects. So since you asked the questions, what could we do to reduce opioid-related side effects? I think one place that we could start is to consider the individual opiates that we use uh, to get the effects that we're looking for um, mm-hmm. from the pure mu agonists while also minimizing the risks. So when we're looking for relatively short duration um, of analgesia in dogs and cats, uh, we can use opiates like butorphanol for mild right pain. It's still a pretty good analgesic relative to nothing. Um, It may not provide the degree of analgesia, but if I'm undergoing something, a short procedure like a radiograph, Mm -hmm. um, the dog may be painful and that's why I'm radiographing it. So it's good to include some analgesic. Um, And I think we're really, um, we can consider doses of drugs that we use. Uh, We can also look at other, um, within the drugs that we have, is there one that we could Uh, minimize the risk if they're a concern of patients. So we're really fortunate that methadone has now entered um, into the Canadian market. And so that provides us with another pure mu um, opiate analgesic agent. And fortunately, it has a reduced risk of uh, regurgitation and vomiting uh, when compared with um, hydromorphone or morphine. Uh, and I'm so glad that you brought up methadone because it's something here at the primary health care center that we have uh, just started to discuss a little bit more. Um, you know, the, the, the opioids that we use most frequently would be butorphanol um, and hydromorphone. Uh, we do have some buprenorphine um, and that's pretty much our limitations. But I know that there's been, um, you know, more discussion about methadone now that it, there's easier access to it. Uh, I haven't used methadone, so can you tell me a little bit more about methadone? And you know, is this a fad too, or is this you know, as veterinarians, we love new things and toys and drugs. Um, so why, yeah, tell me more about methadone. Okay, well, methadone um, has certainly 
been around for a long, long time, and I've been reading about it. It's mm-hmm. been in the UK and in um, Europe, Germany for you know ten plus years. Wow. Um, it, it's actually been in the Canadian market, but on the human side, primarily okay. to treat heroin right. addiction because the withdrawal side effects from methadone are less severe than heroin. Interesting. Uh, but it has recently gained uh, labeled use, and it's licensed for use in in cats okay. um, as part of a pre medication and for post-operative analgesia in Canada. Um, Because there's lots of, uh, it is licensed in other countries uh, via other routes. Um, So it is licensed for subcutaneous use in um, cats in the UK. Hmm. And while it's not labeled for use in dogs in Canada yet, um, it is licensed in many other countries, including UK and Australia, Germany, for use in the dog via the IM sub-Q and intravenous route. Interesting, because I, I remember um, like years ago hearing about methadone and people were starting sort, you know, to, to talk a little bit more about the use, but there, I, I believe you had to have an emergency drug release to get it. So now it sounds like there's more access. So that's uh, certainly good. Um, so what makes methadone different from other opioids that are available? Well, one, I mentioned before that it of the pure mu agonists, it, it definitely is associated with less uh, vomiting. Um, regurgitation and aspiration in some groups of patients. Um, It is classified like like morphine and hydromorphone. It is classified as a pure mu agonist. And it has quite a few pharmacological and clinical effects that are very similar to the other um, pure mu agonist. Um, It does exist in uh, two isomers. So it's like metatomidine. Oh, right. Like with the um, dexmetatomidine is the D. Now for dexmed, they took out the L. Um, Interestingly, with methadone, the L isomer binds to the mu opiate receptor, while the D isomer binds to and acts um, at the NMDA receptor as an antagonist. So like ketamine. Okay. Uh, So that's interesting. That is neat. In terms of its activity at the um, mu receptor, it actually binds to the receptor a little differently than morphine. And I'm not going to go into details because I'm not an expert in that area, but it's certainly um, the mechanism that it binds to the receptor uh, results in less um, development of tolerance over time. Oh, okay. So if you have a patient that's getting an opiate for a long time, um, it uh, and you, you might not see that as much um, here, but uh, we certainly might have patients um, on an opiate for a prolonged period of time in in the referral hospital. Um, How else is it different? Certainly um, in terms of efficacy, it's um, so, and that refers to the maximum possible um, biological effect. Mm -hmm. It's much more uh, efficacious at treating pain than buprenorphine. And it's actually similar to that of morphine. So one and a half to one times that of morphine for pain. So is it stronger? So it's, it's much almost. stronger than okay. and buprenorphine, um, but it's similar to morphine. I would say yes, it's easy. Let's say it's similar, similar to, to, morphine. to morphine and okay. hydromorphone. It, it's potency, at, which again refers to, don't you remember Dr. Dyson with those graphs? Yes. And potency and F. She used to always get us on <laughs> that in those tests. <laughs> But hopefully she's listening to our podcast. Um, so that's the amount of the drug. So that okay. the dose. So as long as they can adjust the concentration that we can give it, it, it really doesn't make too much difference. Uh, it's less potent than and than buprenorphine. Right. Um, but it's 
relatively similar to morphine. Okay. So that results basically in a similar dose. Um, we're in the same range of doses as morphine, maybe a little less potent than morphine because the dose range is from about 0.2 to 0.6 mix milligrams per kilogram in the dog and the cat. Okay. So clinically, I think it's a little different um, than what we see. I, I did mention the vomiting, um, which is great. Yeah, that and is that's, good. Yeah, yeah our that's huge. have quickly, they really enjoy it. Okay. We don't seem to think uh, that the set of effects are quite as heavy as what we might see with hydromorphone. Okay. Again, that's not as much in the literature as based on our clinical experience. experience. Um, but they are still sedated in cats when you give it alone. They they may not look flat, um, but they're they'll be kneading and purring, and they don't protest to an IV catheter placement as okay. readily. They do get the classic opiate mydriasis, you know, right. the big pupils, <laughs> um, and the heart rate generally decreases, um, and the respiratory rate as well. Um, in terms of the analgesia, uh, very similar to hydromorphone. Uh, most of the studies um, and our clinical experience is 0.3 to 0.5 milligrams per kilogram is similar to hydro at 0.05 mg per kg. Okay. And its duration of action is similar to hydro, four to six hours. That's um, pretty good. Yeah. For most, most surgery, you know, like for, for sure in primary care anyway, so yeah. that would be perfect. Yep. yep. It's a good one. Um and depending on when we, we teach our, our spay-neuters, it, it just may be. <laughs> Maybe they need longer. <laughs> um, certainly, uh, you can. In Germany, the product is combined with uh, an anticholinergic. Oh, um, so okay. if you have an animal that uh, is bradycardic and you've given, um, you haven't given an alpha-2, right. we'll go ahead and give um, an anticholinergic if the heart rate goes down. Okay. So, so for instance, like in, in, in our use in terms of, um, you know, primary care um, and taking the example of a spay-neuter, often our uh, pre-med um, is to give 0.05 milligrams per kilogram of hydromorphone uh, combined with, you know, a, a little bit of dexmedetomidine just to sort of, you know, for some sedation and whether it's, you know, 0.005 or 0.01 milligrams per kilogram. So you could replace um, the hydromorphone um, with the methadone and the hope would be is that you'll have the same duration and the same effect that you would with the hydromorphone but uh, potentially less vomiting um, and um, and which, which is a good thing obviously so is that sort of why people are kind of pushing towards methadone or yeah I do think that's the case for sure that it's the vomiting um, that okay. most of us find unpleasant sure. uh, for our patients you know we can't speak for them but I think the move has been a way to minimize the risk. Unfortunately, I don't. It's it's hard to measure nausea sure. in patients, and it has reported if you get too high in your doses. If you know, then when they test the drugs, they have to give the animals very high doses, okay. and they will report lip licking, hypersalivation, sort of signs that we attribute to nausea, um, and you will see that um, not as readily as you do with hydro. Uh, or not as frequently as you do with hydro. Okay. Um, so, but for me, I, like I'm kind of spoiled. I'll fully recognize yeah. it. I have the, <laughs> the the full menu of opiates. Um, so if I'm going to pick, um, there's certain times where I'm like, yes, I absolutely want to use uh, methadone okay. over hydro. Over. And certainly um, it's the brachycephalic dogs. Okay. I, I'm 100% on board okay. for that. Um so 
that's one. If I'm worried, um, any patient that's, I'm worried about vomiting. So if it's a foreign body. Okay. So I, I yeah, don't want those. them to. Sure. If it's landed in the stomach, that's a great place to get versus the esophagus. Sure. sure. If they're trauma and I'm worried about head trauma, I don't want okay. vomiting. So that's certainly um, something that I'd consider. If, it, if it's a dog that I am worried about reflux, um, again, I'd, I'd pick uh, methadone over. So even like in, in, again, in the primary care setting here for our dentistries, maybe that, you know, because they're long procedures and then potentially, you know, we're, we're trying to minimize the risk of, of, of any kind of aspiration, that kind of thing. So anything that helps or reflux, like you said. So yeah, absolutely. So okay. those are certainly the ones to consider. There's a couple of things that I think that I might not choose methadone over hydro okay. or fentanyl. Um, and that might be an animal that's hypertensive okay. or already has a pre-existing um, arrhythmia in the form of a bradyarrhythmia. Okay. Um, there, there's starting to be a little bit of literature that um, it does cause a reduction in heart rate. It might be slightly more than with hydro. Again, no big clinical trials yet, um, but something to keep in mind okay. um, that we may learn more about. Um so I think in overall in our practice we have we are using it a lot, and I do think there's practitioners out there that have switched due to the the vomiting concern. Yeah, and I've certainly seen that. Like you know, certainly when when um, when I see the emergency discharges from the weekend, you know, get faxed over or emailed over here to the clinic, and I'll see you know what 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 pain protocol people are using. It seems that methadone is definitely on the list. So mm-hmm. kind of a trend. So um, so should we just use methadone in place of other mu agonists? Is that sort of where this is going? Well, of course, we like to use, um, I want them all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. We want the menu. We want the menu. I we want don't the just full want menu. Yeah, full menu. Yeah, exactly. Um, I like it. So I do think you could consider other, um, if you didn't want to stock methadone, um, you could use other techniques. So certainly, um, antiemetics have really, um, or the use of sure. antiemetics has really increased, I right. believe. And that's a great way um, to go. Um, and I think, again, going back to that balanced anesthesia protocol where you consider the individual patient, um, mm-hmm. you know, I'd still want butorphanol because it gives pretty good sedation when it's combined. Yeah. Um, so I'm not going to kick um, butorphanol out of my repertoire or okay. buprenorphine because it lasts so nice and long. Right. Um, hydro, again, if I had a patient that had potentially, you know, hypertension, uh, but I needed a pure mu agonist and I didn't have fentanyl, then I'd probably keep sure. my hydro on board. Um, and again, just thinking about, uh, other ways to get your analgesia. So maybe you'll keep hydro, but, uh, you don't want to invest in the methadone or having another opiate. Uh, you could certainly, uh, think about, um, how you could include local anesthetic techniques, right. or is it a patient that's suitable to use an alpha two and an NSAID? Um, so I think then you can reduce the side effects by still maintaining your use of hydro if you're really comfortable with it. And, and maybe try out hydro, see how it works in your individual setting. Right. Or try out methadone, mm-hmm. uh, sorry, yeah, um, methadone. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, see how it works in your individual setting before you decide to jump in with both feet. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I, and uh, with the antiemetics, as you um, uh, mentioned previously, I mean, certainly I think it's been fantastic, you know, um, here, you know, to use um, something like, you know, Serenia, Meropitant, and, and um, that's certainly helped. And I think that the, the, the one thing that I do find that it's a time thing, so um, correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, ideally you would give it an hour before you gave the opioid. And I think that's where sometimes we fall short, where we're rushing and, you know, and that it stings the injection. And, you know, and so sometimes I find that we're sedating and giving the Meropitant after the pre-med, which is kind of not really what, yeah, <laughs> not very helpful. So, you know, and again, I think it's great because hopefully, you know, you get, uh, they feel a little bit better waking up and they don't have that lip smacking and that kind of yeah. thing. But I think, you know, paying more attention, like you said, to um, other, you know, drugs that are available so that we can help minimize some of these side effects and make these pets feel better. So. Yeah, I 100% agree. Get it, hitting that, that the literature definitely supports at least a 45 minute up to two hour. Those are the time frames of giving your Meropitant um, before right. um, your hydro. Um, it is hard to let go of a drug. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's interesting because actually, I guess the next question would be should I just, you know, toss hydro to the side and order up some methadone? Like, you know, yeah. and I feel like sometimes um, I feel like a bit hesitant to do that because I, I often say to the students that the best drug that you can pick is the one that you're familiar with. And, um, and I don't know why I'm so hesitant potentially to jump on the methadone bandwagon, but I think we're just so familiar with what we use and it seems to be working. Right. So absolutely. Yeah. I mean, every anesthetist usually starts with a a talk by saying, you know, there are, uh, no good anesthetic drugs. It's, it's a good anesthetist that makes the difference in the outcome. Uh, but, and, and I'm equally, you get your favorites. So I'm equally guilty. Like if I have an aggressive, aggressive dog, Mm -hmm. um, or a really fearful dog that really needs a heavy sedation, there's nothing for me that beats, uh, hydro and dexmedetomity to achieve that safely. Um, they're both reversible, you know, as Mm -hmm. is methadone, but, um, methadone doesn't typically give you the quality of sedation, um, that a hydro would. Okay. Um, now if you're using the alpha twos, often, uh, you're still going to get a yeah. good sedation. Um, so I'm not sure I want to give away my, my hydro quite yet. Um, right. but I think as I develop my comfort level with, um, methadone, it may be that in the future, it's something that I slowly let go. Well, yeah, <laughs> fair enough. So in addition to using methadone in place of other opioids to reduce the induce of vomiting, are there other ways then we can reduce the effect of uh, opioids? I and mean, we've talked a little bit about the meropitant um, and how we should be giving it, you know, before, you know, 45 minutes to two hours. Um, you know, what else can we do? Is there anything else that we can do to help these, these animals? Or did we touch on that? I think, you know, overall, we're, we're doing a great job. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I think the quality of anesthesia and analgesia that we give, mm-hmm. um, how practitioners are just so much more aware of using local blocks and you guys get to do so much more dentistry. And I think that's yep. a great place to include your local, local blocks. Absolutely. Local blocks, you know, everything's getting intubated, airways protected yep. and uh, fluid therapy. Yep. Uh, we're tweaking, we're learning a lot more about how to address that. So I think overall, you know, th- this podcast isn't about, we're not doing it right. I think yeah, it's, yeah. you know, hey, there's some new stuff out there. Yeah. Think about it. Uh, don't be, yeah. if a client asks you about it, because mm-hmm. they may, uh, Read something I don't know about something. you, but sure. some of our clients like to search the internet. They do, yes. Dr. Google is very yeah, popular Dr. Google, here. Yes. Uh, as well mm-hmm. with the students. So sure. they may ask sure. you about opiate-free anesthesia. Sure. And certainly, you know, hopefully this has given you a little insight into some of the controversies. Um, and you can respond, you know, that I think 
we're doing a good job of trying to reduce the side effects. Um, you know, the respiratory depression, I think we're, yeah. we're, we've got good handles on that um, in, with our monitoring and um, to address that. And we don't have quite the degree of respiratory depression in, in dogs and cats. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we were protecting the airway and giving them oxygen. Those are all good things. And then um, the doses that we're using to minimize side effects and you're addressing the vomiting um, through using antiemetics or selecting specific opiates that have a reduced risk of vomiting. Yeah, depending on the procedure. Yeah, that sounds like a good idea. I mean, I know um, that, that anesthesia has come so far, you know, since I graduated when it, it seemed to me that there were such, you know, few drugs to, to, to choose from. And even when I look at chronic pain and what's available, um, there's just so many more options nowadays. And so it'll be interesting to see even from 10 and 20 years from now, you know, where where things go. So, uh, but I think this is a great discussion. Um, it's really interesting. Again, all of our students, um, you know, do externships and different practices all over Canada. Um, and for the first time in my life, I've heard, you know, the word supply chain issues or the phrase supply chain issues. And so opioid-free anesthesia, um, analgesia is, you know, something that could be very real and so um so this is a great great discussion and great tools to to provide our listeners so um thank you very much carolyn for coming today um this has been such a great discussion i, I think i'm gonna have to check into methadone <laughs> so i'm gonna have to stop being scared and give it a try i know dr omar um, uses it quite a bit so i'm gonna have to give that a go um and um, i can't wait to, to to let you know how uh how i feel about it <laughs> so <laughs> well this is a great time of year mm. uh, tip it's my True. pleasure to come in. Um, I love working with our students at this time I of know, year. Yeah. Quite a few of them will have a, quite a bit of experience now working with our colleagues out in, in, uh, in the field in private practice in Ontario and elsewhere, um, both in Canada and outside. So yeah. I, I think it's, uh, I'm always uh, fun to try new things. It's it's not that different from hydro sure. and morphine. It's just slightly different. Yeah. Um, yeah. And when you look at lots of animals, there's not that big a difference. Um What's hard is if you have one experience with one animal is to not yes, get Yes, of course. Yes. And that's that's the problem because you do, if you have a bad experience the first time, then that's that's usually the the deal breaker, right? So and then you go back to the familiar. So um, so yes, yeah, so we'll have to definitely give it a chance. So um, so thank you again for joining us. It's been so informative. Um, for our listeners, um, please check us out uh, on Instagram at Vet Sessions. Uh, you can also email us vetsessions at hotmail.com. And um, just an appreciation and a thank you to our sponsor. Um, pet trust we really appreciate it Um, please check them out on instagram as well